As you turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, as Dom led us in prayer earlier for the war that's breaking out in Ukraine, many of us ask, how are we to live in such certain times? And it is for that reason that the book of 1 Thessalonians is so important because the Apostle Paul, who is the author of this letter, is writing to a church of how they should live knowing that one day the end would come, that Jesus Christ would return. How do we then live? Surprisingly, as we get towards the end of this this letter, he gets very practical. He doesn't simply focus on end time events. He begins to talk about end time ethics, how we live, how we behave. He'll talk about ambition. He'll talk about work. He'll talk about even facing death. But today, as we come to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 1 through 8, we talk about sexual ethics. Some of you are like, great. I came to church on the sex sermon Sunday. But friends, it is so important that we understand what the Bible teaches and why it matters for us. So let me read 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Verse 1 to 8, we'll read the text and then we'll pray together once more. Paul the Apostle writes, As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God, and that in this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins, as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, this morning, we ask that as we open your word, that you would open our hearts. We pray that you would teach us why it is that sexual ethics are so important, that we rightly understand what it is that your word teaches, and that by your grace and your power, you would help us to live in light of this. We pray for conviction where conviction is needed. And we pray for comfort where comfort is needed. For guilt and shame that many of us bring from our past, we pray that we would experience your goodness and grace and your forgiveness anew and afresh. And that you'd help us all to live in light of the gospel truth to live in light of your word, knowing that this leads to true fulfillment. Spirit of God, would you guide us now? We ask in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. Well, as a new Christian over 20 years ago, I naturally started spending time with other Christians, and when I did, I began to hear all kinds of new words that I wasn't familiar with or use in my common vernacular. Words like justification. Words like sanctification. And also words that certainly weren't a part of my previous vernacular. Words like purity. It was a word I heard quite often and it was used at times to describe the general lifestyle of the Christian, but quite often it was also used in the context of sexual purity. That is, abstaining from sexual activity outside of marriage. And the more I heard this word purity used, I began to notice two reactions. For some, the topic of purity brought up a lot of shame. 
For me in particular, before I was a Christian, I lived a very sexually promiscuous lifestyle. And at the time, I had recently become a Christian, but I still felt like damaged goods because of what I had done, the guilt and shame that I still carried. When the word purity was often used, I know for me and for others, it brought up a lot of shame. But for others, the topic of purity came up with a bit of self-righteousness because I quickly learned there were some who were very proud of their purity and would often display it as a badge of their pride and their own effort. But I learned in the Bible, as I studied and as I read, as I learned, that the goal of purity is neither shame nor self-righteousness, but true satisfaction in a right relationship with God and with others. In chapter 4 of Paul's letter to the Thessalonian church 2,000 years ago, Paul turns a corner into practical issues of ethics and behavior. And when he does, he begins with sexual purity. And one of the reasons that he does so is because along with how we work and how we spend our money and how we spend our time and even how we face death, these are areas where Christians lived in a radically different, I would even say revolutionary way. See, what we need to understand, especially in the first century, but also today, in Greek and Roman society, most people feared death, guarded their money, and shared their bed sexually speaking. That's how most people lived in that's Greco-Roman society. But Christians were radically different. Christians had hope in death. They guarded their bed, but they shared their money. And the whole world was amazed. At first, people mocked Christians because they were so different. But these kinds of ethics actually swept the Roman Empire. There was something so opposite and yet so attractive about the way that Christians lived. Because if you read your history, fearing death, guarding money, but sharing their bed, speaking of sexual promiscuity, was actually destroying Roman society. Paul is writing this letter to new Christians within the empire, reminding them to live distinct lives in these areas. Otherwise, they would lose their impact. The revolutionary influence and fulfillment that comes in a right relationship with God. As the title of the sermon suggests, he's calling them to a new kind of purity. And friends, it is so vital that we listen because according to scripture, you might think, well, what, what does this have, what does sex ethics have to do with, with me? And like, this is, isn't this a personal matter? Listen. It is so vital that we listen because according to scripture, sexual ethics reflect what you believe about God and also what you believe about yourself and about other people. Now, it's such a huge topic, and there's no way that I can be exhaustive this morning in addressing all the themes related to this, but I hope to give some main ideas from this text. But I understand that many of you here in this room or those of you outside or those of you joining us online are coming from a different place. Some of you are exploring Christianity, discovering Jesus for the first time. I hope that it's clear what this is all about and why it matters. Some of you are newer Christians, but maybe you're unaware of what the Bible actually teaches about sex and marriage and the ethics that go with it. And this will be a day of learning. Some of you claim the name of Jesus, but you actually reject the Bible's teaching on sexual ethics. So this will be a day of challenge for you and conviction for you. But others, you might know the scriptures, you know what the Bible teaches, and you're seeking to follow what scripture teaches in these matters. For some of you, it's going well. For some of you, not so well. For some of you, it might be a struggle. But listen, this morning, every one of us needs the instruction of God, the conviction of God, 
and the grace of God when it comes to sexual ethics. Every one of us here deals with different degrees of longing and desire and perhaps even some pain or shame when it comes to this subject. But church, know this. The Bible says what it says about sexual purity, not to create pain and brokenness, but actually to heal pain and brokenness. So what is purity all about? Let's unpack this passage under three headings. And the first is this. Purity is about living with a new purpose. We'll get to verses one through three in a moment where Paul basically says this new purpose is living in order to please God. That's his big idea. But I want to step back for a moment before we get into these particular verses to set the scene. Because when it comes to sexual ethics, all of us tend to follow a script. We take our cues from a script. For some, it's a traditional script. And for others, it's a more modern or progressive script. Some of you are used to the traditional script when it comes to sex ethics. Think Victorian society. Sex is merely functional. It's gross. It's an unnecessary evil and should only be spoken of when it comes to reproduction. Maybe some of you are familiar with that particular script when it comes to sex ethics. But I would guess that many more people are familiar with the more modern script. The script that I grew up with in the San Francisco Bay Area, home of science and granola, where I learned many things, <laughs> one of which was a very interesting sexual ethic. But it's really the script of radical individualism. What I mean by that is that it means we no longer look to tradition, right? Like when I was growing up as an angsty punk rock teenager, I'll just let your imagination go wild as to how that looked. <laughs> But I wanted to stick it to the man. And I did so with my music. I didn't want to follow tradition. I wanted to do what I wanted. So individualism tells us that we don't look for meaning and purpose to the past or to our parents or to tradition. We actually look within ourselves. Right? It's one of the main themes that you hear about in most movies. Like it doesn't matter what it's about. It's like, what does your heart tell you? And everyone in the theater is like, oh, you guys, you know, like, ah, it's most important. Because it's thought that choices based on my own individual desires will yield the most fulfillment and happiness in my life. So the modern script is, if I can just discover what I really want and what I most desire, I will discover my true self and I will be free. Therefore, society and any other organized, you know, religion or anything else should give me as many options as possible to explore and to express myself in any way that I desire, especially in the world of sex and romantic relationships. The idea is that there should be no barriers at all. And this is due in part to the fact that many people believe that ultimate meaning and ultimate fulfillment come from a romantic relationship or sexual expression itself. And when I say that, I'm reminded of one of the great writers in Britain from the last century, G.K. Chesterton, who once said, every man walking into a brothel is actually looking for God. That's a quote. So many people are looking for the transcendent. They are looking for the divine. They're looking for some kind of completion and fulfillment and settling of desires when it comes to romantic relationships and sexual expression. And it is such a hot topic because romance and sex has almost taken on a mythological status, right? As I just mentioned, it tends to be like the climax of every story. The movies you watch, the books that, that you read, it doesn't even matter what the movie's about. It could be like a zombie apocalypse. And we're all watching the movie and you're like, but do they get together? <laughs> like it doesn't matter that like not, you know, like all these like zombies are dying everywhere. It's like, where's the romance? Do they get together? I was struck by this one time when I was at Barnes and Nobles with my kids and they're younger and you know they have in every section like a sign over ever, every literary genre and I was shocked to discover that there was a new one that I had not yet heard about and it was 
paranormal teenage romance. I was like, wait, this is a literary genre? <laughs> paranormal teenage romance. Like vampires, teenagers, romance. It's like the plot line to most stories. They're like, well, where? Because we have come to believe that it only really matters. The climax of every story is like, we have to be able to follow our desires, no matter what they are. There are different sexual scripts out there, and people use them as a reference point. When is it okay to do this? Who should go first? What is appropriate? What is inappropriate? These scripts from the conversations we have, the films we watch, the books we read, influence us for years and tend to shape our behavior. A young woman wondering what a good girlfriend does at four months of dating, or a young man wondering what a good boyfriend does at a few months of dating, will quite often take their cues from the scripts they've heard, whether that is traditional or whether that is progressive. But I want you to see that the Bible's teaching challenges both the traditional script and the progressive script, and in doing so actually leads to real freedom. And it starts here. We have a new purpose, and that is to reflect the character and the story of God. Notice from the first few verses that Paul is not calling us to just a traditional view, like by just simply saying sex is merely functional, deal with it. Nor does he lead us to a progressive view, express yourself however you want, when he addresses sexual ethics. What does he say? Verse 1 to 3. As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality. And I want you to notice, as the scripture's there on the screen or you have it open in front of you, I want you to notice two things here at the beginning. The authority with which Paul speaks and the focus that he has in speaking. So first of all, note the authority with which Paul speaks on this. He doesn't present sexual ethics as some kind of optional extra for Christians. He's not like, hey guys, you know, like, here's a suggestion, like, don't commit sexual immorality, but if that doesn't, like, sit right with you, then don't worry about it. Do what you want. He doesn't say that. Notice he speaks with authority. He says, we ask you, we urge you in the Lord Jesus Christ how you ought to walk. It is clear that he is laying out with authority his teaching on this topic as something greater than the culture, greater than our own desires that is neither roughly traditional or progressive. And that leads to the focus with which he speaks. What is the foundation for all Christian ethics? What is the foundation even for purity? Well, some Christians might even forget this. Number one, it starts with what is pleasing to God. See, purity is not first about what you avoid. A lot of Christians lead that out. Purity is first about what you pursue. It starts here. It starts with the question, God, what is pleasing to you? What is it that you want for my life? When you're saved and you've given your life to Jesus Christ, the first question is, God, what pleases you? If you've ever read the Gospels, I'm sure you'll be like me, struck by how many times when Jesus, the Son of God, speaks about his own life and what he does, he says, I do what pleases the Father. And so it is true for anyone who follows Jesus. The first question and the foundation for all of our behavior, all of our ethics is, God, what is pleasing to you? I want to live for you. You created me. You saved me. I'm twice yours. 
I want to please you. Some people, as we get into some of the prohibitions here, they think, oh, that's legalism. This is not legalism. Nor is this lawlessness. Friends, this is love. It begins with a love for God. Purity starts not with what you should avoid, though that is there. It starts with what you should pursue. The guiding principle for all of our ethics and all of our behavior is found there in the first few verses. What is pleasing to God? And if you want to please God, then you will want to know what his will is. And there are several times in Scripture where it's very clearly written, the will of God for you is this. It's mentioned here later in 1 Thessalonians 5. This is the will of God for you that you give thanks. Okay, that's the will of God. But it's also found here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. This is the will of God for you, your sanctification, that you should avoid sexual immorality. Sanctification, this big but beautiful word that means set apart. Set apart for a purpose. I, am, I have a purpose. God's designed me with a purpose and he's redeemed me for a purpose. And the same is true for you. That means that we are to look at our sexuality in light of this. It means we don't just automatically say yes to every appetite or desire that we find within ourselves. Rather, we discern our desires in light of what God created us for. The Bible never teaches you just to follow without question whatever your heart wants. We have spoken on this often. But if we're honest, you know what's interesting about that statement? Is if anyone is honest, they will find that they have all kinds of conflicting desires in their heart. And it, could it not be a good thing that you don't always follow what your heart wants to do? Especially for me when I'm driving and somebody cuts me off. You should all be thankful that I do not do or say what is in my heart to do or say in moments when people cut me off on the 101. Because I may not be here to preach for you. <laughs> there are all kinds of conflicting desires in my heart that often compete against one another. How do I discern? How do I know which one is good? How do I know which one should be celebrated and which one should be prohibited? We look to God's design. We ask the question, what is pleasing to God? What is his will for us? See, this is a whole worldview shift. And that's where we start. The life of faith is not about pleasing ourselves, but pleasing the God who made us. And this is actually what leads to the most satisfying life. It is both right to follow Jesus by following these sexual ethics. It is also good. See, the Bible says that we were never meant to find fulfillment, ultimate fulfillment, and ultimate and deepest intimacy in romantic relationships, but in a relationship with God. See, I say this because oftentimes in the church, Christianity is like hijacked, where the story you might hear in church is, hey, do whatever you want to do and God can help. Right? Really, the stage is set for the grand story of you and God is your little stage hand. And he's like, I'll pull, I'll pull the curtain for you. I'll be the co-star. Do whatever you want to do and God will give you a little power for that. Do whatever you want to do and God will give you a little wisdom for that. And we cherry pick what we like and we don't like from the Bible. But that's not what Christianity is about. Dale Keene, who's a, he's an author. He's actually a pastor and a professor of politics at Georgetown University. Very interesting bivocation. He wrote a book on sexuality and ethics and he said this simply, Christianity is not about deciding who we want to be and what makes us happy. It is about learning who we are and how to find not just happiness, but fulfillment in relating to God and to one another. See, sexual expression was never meant to bear the weight of your identity and your fulfillment, regardless of what the culture says. The scriptures tell us that only a relationship with God through Jesus Christ can bear that weight. So for the church, we don't merely need a, a unique stance on sexuality. We need a different story on sexuality. And indeed, this is all about the bigger story. It's there from Genesis to Revelation. So we begin here. Purity is about living with a new purpose. But it gets practical. That leads to the second point. 
purity is not just about living with a new purpose, which is wanting to know what pleases God and knowing what his will is. But secondly, purity is about living by a new pattern. How do we live this out? What should we pursue and what should we avoid if we are going to please God and do his will? Well, Paul goes on in verses 4 through 7 to set out a pattern for us. He shows us how a follower of Jesus lives distinct lives in the area of sexual ethic. He defines it first in the positive, and then there are warnings. Verse 4 through 7, he says that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God. And that in this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. So there are the more positive instructions and then there are the warnings. The positive instructions is we're called to to be sanctified. He said that in verse 3. We're set apart for a new purpose. We're also called to holiness, which is really wholeness according to God's design. And then honor, which has to do with rightly valuing God's design and living in light of that in the way that we treat one another and the way that we view our own selves. And so he affirms the goodness of sexuality here and elsewhere, sexual expression in its right context, that is within marriage. Because to honor is to rightly value God's design and to live in light of it. The book of Hebrews says that the marriage bed is honorable, speaking of sexual expression within marriage. That's what God designed it for. But going against this, There are warnings. Going against this, he says, is wrong. We must avoid immorality, verse 3, passionate lust, verse 5, and impurity, verse 7. Those are the warnings. It's interesting, each of these words is unique. The word there in verse 3 is pornea, sexual immorality, where we get our word pornography from, of course. But this refers to that and many other things. It refers to any illicit sexual behavior outside of marriage. So that would include sexual activity before marriage, sexual activity outside of marriage, affairs, adultery, but also would include pornography, the way in which we entertain it within our own minds and hearts. So he's not just simply forbidding intercourse outside of marriage, but sexual activity outside of marriage. And of course, we remember Jesus' words in the famous Sermon on the Mount when he said, even lusting after another woman or another man, entertaining sexual fantasies towards someone who is not your spouse is sin. And then he uses that word passionate lust is forbidden. That is desire that goes beyond the boundaries. You say, I know the boundaries, but I'm going to cross them. And impurity, the word he uses in verse 7, is the state of living in such patterns. But the new pattern, in contrast to this, that he wants us to follow with this new purpose, if I want to please God, I want to know his will, then what we're called to in the matter of sexual ethics is self-control. He says that each would learn how to control your own body in verse 4 in a way that is holy and honorable. To use a metaphor, think of the fire in a fireplace. It's simple, but I think important. The fire, of course, could refer to, you know, a meta- as a metaphor for desire and, and passion. And the fireplace can be the metaphor for God's design. You want the fire in the fireplace. It is so powerful when it's in the fireplace in its proper context, it can be good and beneficial and right and pleasing. But outside of the fireplace, it can actually become destructive. 
but not because sex is bad, not because sex is gross, but because sex is sacred. God created it with a purpose. So what God's design does is it redirects our desires. I'm to take the desires within me and I am to look at them in light of God's design. And when I read scripture, when we read scripture, we will learn quickly that according to the Bible, sex is not for consumer use. It is for covenant union. Let me just repeat that because it's important. Sex is not for consumer use. It is for covenant union. It's designed with a purpose. Sex is to be enjoyed within the context of marriage. And it is not to be used outside of that purpose between husband and wife. Marital love and sexual expression within marriage is to reflect the broader commitment of marriage. So that when people get married, they exchange vows to one another. And those vows are very rich and they're very strong because it's within those marriage vows where you vow to one another security and openness and and oneness that you're meant to, you were designed to then experience sexual expression within the security and the boundaries and the safety of a covenant union. That is a binding agreement. That's what a covenant means. And this covenant or this vow or this binding agreement, it shows a greater love than just sexual expression on its own. The greater commitment shows sacrificial love that delights in the good of another. When people get married, it's the kind of love that hopefully you hear them promising to one another. You're not just promising feelings, you're hopefully promising sacrificial love. Like hopefully you don't go to a wedding and hear something like, I, John, vow to you, Deborah, to feel a certain minimum level of erotic attraction at all times in your presence. <laughs> no, when you, when you hear the vows, it's, it's a promise to commit to their good in sickness and in health for rich or for poor. Whenever I get to that part in the wedding ceremony, everybody always laughs because most people aren't rich and they know that in their marriage they're actually committing to one another their student loan repayments and they can share that together. (laughs) Sex is designed to be an expression within that commitment, within that covenant, friends. And this is not a random teaching of scripture. It is connected to the entire storyline of the Bible. This isn't about just picking out a few verses. In the book of Genesis, God creates the world. He creates humanity. He creates Adam and Eve, distinction, and yet they are unified together. The two become one. Why? Because it was to be a picture of the relationship that God desires to have with humanity that then finds greater meaning and fulfillment as you move throughout scripture and you come to the New Testament and you find that marriage actually points to this greater relationship of Jesus Christ and the church. We're often called the bride of Christ. We're in a covenant marriage relationship with Christ, which then points to the end of the Bible in the book of Revelation when the new heavens and the new earth are married together, joined together when God renews all things. This points to a greater story. That's why this matters. That's where we get our ethics from. We get it from this greater story. And so when we sin, we're telling a different story. When we transgress, we're going against this story. And so sex outside of marriage is promising with your body what you will not follow up with your whole life. Ronald Roldheiser wrote a book called Holy Longing. He's some excellent work on this. He says this, by its very nature, sex speaks of total giving, total trust, and total commitment. There is an unconditionality inherent in so intimate a sharing of one's soul. Thus, if real trust, commitment, permanency, and unconditionality are not present within the wider relationship, Sex is a lie. It pretends to give a gift that it does not really give, and it asks for a gift that it cannot respectfully reciprocate. 
to separate sex from its meaning and design is such a big issue because it's another attempt to define life apart from God. That's why Paul says and forbids in verse 5, not in lustful passion like the pagans who do not know God. It reflects an attitude that does not know God. And this is an important point to make because our culture believes that we are essentially defined by whatever we desire and therefore we reject as a culture, broadly speaking, we reject anything that would keep us from fulfilling our desires. So much so that I would say this. I think in our culture, especially Western culture, self-denial has become the new immorality. The thing that you almost can't do is deny yourself. But if that's the case, then it's impossible to follow Jesus who said, pick up your cross and what? Deny yourself. But who also said, follow me and you will experience abundant life. But to some, the idea that God would ask you to deny yourself is unthinkable to the modern world. But scripture says that our desires are fallen and can be mixed with good and bad. We need God to guide us. And it is important that we allow him to guide us. Because I want to draw your attention again to the warnings in this passage in verse 6. There are warnings. He says, no one should wrong or transgress. Very key words, which means overstepping the boundaries. It carries the idea of a deliberate violation. Most of us might not think of sex outside of marriage as a form of theft. But when you sleep with someone who is not your spouse, a theft is taking place. You are defrauding them of what God wants for them and for you. He also says, see to it that you do not take advantage, or some translations say exploit. Which means do not use a person for your own sexual gain. Though many cultures, sadly, do not have laws that forbid exploitation, people can take courage in this, that there will be accountability from God, that he does care. And so there are three warnings here that I want us to see simply. If we are going against what God has called us to, if we're going against his design, number one, these things will be judged by God. Number two, they are the opposite of the Christian life. And number three, to disregard that these actions are sin is actually to disregard God himself. That's what Paul says at the beginning of verse eight. And friends, that's the heart of the matter. It's about where and in what way do I view God? Am I following him or am I rejecting him? And am I showing that in the way that I live? See, that's what the word chastity is about, right? We don't, nobody uses that word. Who uses chastity in the common vernacular? Well, last week I was speaking to my accountability partner about chastity. But it's actually a very rich word. Chastity has to do with the way that you experience other people. To quote Ronald Rollheiser again, he says, chastity is respect, reverence, and patience. Its fruits are integration, gratitude, and joy. Lack of chastity is impatience, irreverence, and violation. Its fruits are disintegration of soul, bitterness, and cynicism. See, it's about revering God. It's about honoring God. Chastity is about the reverence that we have towards God and also the dignity we have towards other people. To put it simply, it's that we experience others in a way that does not violate them and does not violate ourselves, but treat them in a way that is honorable. For those of you who have been on the receiving end of sexual exploitation, know that God says to you, you are not an object. You are not to be groped. You are not to be abused. You are not to be taken advantage of. That's how God sees it. But to those who have been on the acting end, God did not create you to be a predator. God did not create you to be an aggressor. God did not create you to be a consumer. And all of us, we are most manly or womanly when we show reverence. 
restraint and respect because ultimately we're showing that we revere Christ and that we're treating one another as image bearers of God. But at this point, you might ask, well, how can I do that? That leads to the third point, and you need to hear this. Purity is about living with a new power. And sadly, sometimes the Christian message that you might hear in a church kind of stops there and doesn't give you gospel. I want you to notice in verse 8, there are two things that Paul does when he concludes this sentence and concludes this section on sexual ethics. First, he reminds them that all of this is not a matter of personal opinion or preference. So you can't just wiggle out of this and say, well, that's just your opinion. I'm going to do what I want. I'm going to continue to in sexual immorality and pornography and whatever. But notice Paul says purity is a commandment from God. In verse 8, therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God. That's weighty. Purity is a commandment of God. But secondly, purity is a provision from God. You need to see this. This is the God who gives you his Holy Spirit. I want you to underline that eight times. This is the God who gives you his Spirit. When you put your trust in Jesus, the Spirit of God makes his home in you and empowers you to live out these commands. You cannot live out the commands of Scripture without the power of God. You cannot do this. You are not called to do this in your own strength. God gives you his Spirit. But if we can just nerd out on the Greek for a moment because it's very important, Paul here is not referring to the past work of the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit initially came into your life, the word gives is in an ongoing present tense. God who continually gives you his Holy Spirit. He's referring to God's ongoing gift of the Holy Spirit. You continually are being given access to power that does not come from yourself to help you live as God has called you to live. So friends, a pure life is made possible not by your power, but by God's power. And you need to hear it and I need to hear it. The Spirit of God renews our desires. The Spirit of God renews our strengths to help us see sin for what it is and to help us turn from it and to view others rightly, men and women rightly, to view ourselves rightly and to view God rightly. His concern is that we are dependent on the power of God for this life of purity. And this life of purity does not kill your relational life. It actually renews your relational life to learn how to live faithfully in singleness, to learn how to live faithfully as a married man or a married woman. And to do that, it is so important to know where the power lies and it is not within yourself. At the end of verse eight, Paul says, God gives you what you need. God gives you the Holy Spirit. And so it is important that we do not grieve the Spirit, but we yield to the Spirit. We need grace. And this truth is both humbling, but it is also hopeful. It's humbling because you know what this means is that you cannot save yourself. No amount of self-effort in regards to purity is going to move the needle forward enough for you to make yourself right before God. Because some of you hearing this right now will say, yeah, I never. Oh, I would never. I have never. I and pure in my own strength. You might even feel a little smug or self-righteous about your own purity. Oh, I've never done anything like that. Well, listen, virginity will not send you to heaven. Virginity cannot save you. Jesus saves you. And when we look at what the Bible really teaches about lust, we're all sexual sinners speaking to other sexual sinners. Let's be honest. This is humbling. We cannot save ourselves. But friends, this is also radically hopeful because it means that no amount of sexual sin can put you beyond God's reach. And that is good news. Some of you this morning, you might think, well, I know I was, I was saved a long time ago, but recently I've fallen. Well, friend, there is good news for you today. 
Because the way back for all of us is through the cross of Jesus Christ. There is no sexual sin that cannot be forgiven. If you've had an affair, you can be forgiven. If you've been looking at pornography, you can be forgiven. If you've transgressed the boundaries with someone who's not your spouse, you can be forgiven. Why? Because Jesus died for those sins. That's why he died. It's why he came to pay the price for our sin, to settle it, to pay for it, and to rise again so that you could be clean, so that you could be accepted, so that you could be adopted, so that you could be empowered. Because purity is not ultimately about what you offer to God, but what God provides for you and produces through you in that order. Sexual purity is not ultimately about what to avoid, though it includes that, It's ultimately about what to pursue, pursuing God. It's about breaking sinful patterns in order to pursue greater pursuits. God wants to free you from sin so that you can enjoy his gifts, so that you can enjoy his purpose in both singleness and in marriage. So no matter where you are coming from, all of us can have a fresh start. All of us can have a clean heart and a glorious future because Jesus died for us and he rose for us. And when we trust in him and receive, it means all of our wrongs and transgressions have been paid for. So much so that Paul, when he's writing to another church full of men and women who committed all kinds of different sins, including sexual sin, he could say this. Some of you were once like that, but you were cleansed. You were made holy you were made right with God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. I will never forget when I went to Bible college and I met the woman that I would eventually marry and we were dating. I knew I had to tell her about my sexually promiscuous past and I was so ashamed to do so, but she needed to know, so I told her how I had lived. I wanted to be honest with her about that as we were dating and moving towards marriage. I was worried that she would reject me or view me as damaged goods, but I'll never forget in that moment with tears in my eyes as I shared my my past, she looked at me and she said, I see you through the blood of Jesus Christ. You are clean. And I will never forget that. She's never held it over my head because she sees me through Christ. Friend, the same is true for you. In Christ, you are seen in Christ. You are adopted in Christ. So today, if we need to repent, We repent, but we also receive his forgiveness. And then we rejoice that we are children of God. For those of you who are defeated in this area, Jesus is your victor. For those of you who are lonely, Jesus is your comforter. For those of you who have been abandoned or left, Jesus is your promise keeper. For those of you who have unwanted desires, Jesus is your greater pursuit. For those of you who have experienced hurt, Jesus is your healer. And for those of you who feel unwanted, Jesus is your redeemer. And he says, come to me. Come to me and find rest. Let's do that now. Father, we do pray that your spirit would convict where conviction is needed. I pray for those who are in patterns that go against your word. They are in sin. I pray that they would not just sweep it under the rug or hide in the darkness or the shadows, but that they would come into the light this morning. That they would confess their sin, knowing that you have made it possible through Jesus Christ for them to be forgiven of all of their sin and to have a clean heart. God, I pray this morning that no one would hide because you see and we don't want to go against you, God. Father, I pray for those who carry wounds from the past. I pray that you would bring healing. You are the healer. And when you look at us in Christ, you don't see damaged goods. You see sons and daughters robed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. 
and you delight in us because of the gospel. I pray that we would truly be able to rejoice today because of what you've done for us. And I pray where we need strength that we would depend on your Holy Spirit, that we'd invite the Spirit into every part of our lives and our hearts. And for anyone here this morning or watching online who does not know you, I pray that right now, from their heart, they would say, Jesus, save me. Save me. I confess that I am a sinner. I believe Jesus died on a cross for my sins. I believe he rose again to give me new life. And I put my trust in him as my Lord and my Savior. Friend, if that's you, pray that right now from your seat. Just say, Jesus, save me, and you will be saved by trusting in what he's done for you. And may we all repent, receive, and rejoice in the finished work of Jesus. Help us to do that, Lord, we ask in his name. Amen. Friends, the communion elements are available up here on the stage, and I think it's so beautiful that God gave us as a reminder of the finished work of the cross, something so tangible. We're called to eat bread and drink the cup, remembering that Christ's body was broken. That's what the bread represents. Remembering that his blood was shed, that's what the cup represents. Something so tangible, we eat it and we drink it, reminding us that Jesus paid for my sin. He paid it all. I can be clean, I can be forgiven, I can be accepted. So we confess our sin, we don't hide, but we also receive his forgiveness and we rejoice that the work of Jesus is finished. He didn't pay 85% and ask you to pay the extra 15%. Jesus paid it all, amen? We celebrate that as we confess our sin and we take communion this morning. So I invite you, if you are a Christian, I call you to come and to celebrate communion today. We can come down to the carpets. We can get on our knees. We can lift our hands. We can just rejoice in the presence of God because of the forgiveness that is secure. If you need prayer for anything, these men and women are to my left, to my right, here up against the walls. Just come and pray where you need wisdom, strength, healing, guidance. It could be in any matter come, do not be afraid to pray. Watch what the Holy Spirit will do. And let's invite God to move in our hearts right now. Let's not move beyond this moment quickly. Let us invite the Spirit of God to convict and to comfort. Let's yield to him now.